Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat. Simone, we're 50. 50. 50 Golden? episodes. Golden? Yeah. <laughs> we can kick, we can stretch. Um, yeah, it's been 50 <laughs> episodes. Thank you for joining us on this wild, crazy ride. Name all 50. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite guest. Go. No, that'll get us in trouble. Don't do that. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening, supporting, subscribing. You can always go to deltadispatches.org to catch up. You got a lot to catch up on. Um, and please rate our podcast because that means a lot. Give us favorable ratings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. That's nice to know. And if we even captured half of the stuff that we talk about off air <laughs> before the show and in between the commercials, yeah. it would be, yeah. That's that's the next uh, behind the scenes <laughs> of exactly. Delta Dispatches. But when we get to 100, we'll yeah. do a coffee table book or Very something good. like that. Very good. Speaking of coffee table books, um, you mentioned yesterday when we went to the New York Times panel that it was like the who's who of Coastal. And I was thinking about, you said you compared it to Seinfeld. Yeah, I always like to so say I that. These. Seinfeld, the coffee table, coffee table books, or the coffee table book about coffee tables. Yeah, um, was that Seinfeld? I don't know, but um, but yeah, no, I love. I mean, it was a great panel, but at these events, you always see the same people. It's the usual suspects, and I like to joke that it's it's like that last episode of Seinfeld where all the characters from all the seasons come back. But there were uh, some new faces there too, new faces. And, and I thought the panel was so interesting. So yeah, it was, and I mean, the Times Picayune reporters were there, Mark Slefstein and Sarah, as well as the New York Times uh, reporters and their managing editor. And it was just a really good conversation. And I think, I mean, you know, Mark Schlefstein, who we've had on the show multiple times, again, just proves how knowledgeable he is oh, about the issues. Yeah, and, and Like, I ask him things. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd like to know what Mark's thinking about because he's been on the issue for so long. And, and I love to pick his brain. Yeah. And so it's nice to see him with his colleagues, too, yeah. to see, you know, how they were influenced by Mark and how they were, they had their own perspective of Louisiana's coast. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, there was a good conversation and some pushback saying, like, you know, you guys focused a lot on the problem. What about the solutions and the opportunities, right. the fact that the state is making progress and we have these diversions? And I think, you know, there were some that said, you know, those are, that is a really yeah. good story, legitimate story. We're, yeah. we're going to continue to follow it. So yeah. we'll so look for that. Nobody let us go outside this week. No field trips. I know. It was good to actually get some work done, be inside. Um, but um, we're going to be talking about the outdoors. Yes, I'm and, very excited uh, for this show. We have to talk about a project meeting, though, mm-hmm. um, that's coming up next week. And then and then we'll get into um, the great outdoors, too. Yeah. Um, so we are speaking with our first guest is Stacy Ortigo, Outreach Coordinator with Louisiana Wildlife Federation. Um, they're a great partner of ours, as well as, you know, uh, part of the National Wildlife Federation just, Network. They just recently had their awards ceremony. Mm-hmm. We had Rebecca on, a good friend of ours, South Wings, won an award. And then uh, a previous guest, um, Brent Haas, won the uh, Governor's Award. Yeah, so. I saw some photos from the event. It looked great. So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Stacy. Hey, guys. Congrats on getting 50 episodes in. <laughs> I know. I think, I think everybody's a little surprised by that, right, Stacey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, great, it's a great podcast. So uh, congrats thank, on the milestone. Thank you. Thanks. So, Stacey, um, we've had Rebecca Trish, the uh, executive director of uh, Louisiana Wildlife Federation, on the show before, but this is your first time, so welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at LWF. So, I'm the outreach coordinator at Louisiana Wildlife Federation. Um, part of my work is to develop and implement advocacy campaigns. Uh, we collaborate with local, state, and national organizations on coastal restoration, uh, organizations like uh, National Wildlife Federation, which we are the state affiliate of that organization. And that's kind of how we're tied into the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Coalition is through that affiliation 
we're, uh, we help out on the outreach part of that work. Very cool. Very cool. How long have you been with LWF? So I actually started as an intern, uh, I think 2013. Uh, then I've been full-time in this position. It'll be two years in July. So very I've been, cool. been with them a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. So Stacy, um, LWF with uh, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority is hosting a very important um, informational meeting this Monday. Um, tell us about the meeting and, you know, what, what the meeting is going to focus on. So the meeting is going to be Monday, uh, March 26th. It's in Reserve, Louisiana, at the Regala uh, Park Gym. So basically, this is going to be just kind of a, an informal meeting. It's not really an official public meeting. And basically, what they want to do is we're going to have some presentations just to kind of go over the project, uh, where it's been, where it's at now, and what the next steps are going to be. And what's different from a public meeting is this will actually give the people that attend a chance to kind of have a question-and-answer session with a panel of experts and some folks working on the project so they can actually get some feedback and have an actual conversation rather than just offering comments and, and not able to get a response. And, you know, the meeting is about, you mentioned a key restoration project, the river reintroduction into Moorpaw Swamp. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yes, yeah, so this project is, uh, it's a priority project for a lot of folks, including uh, Mississippi River Delta Coalition, one of the priority projects. Uh, it's a key project for the state and part of their coastal master plan. It just recently received um, some funding, which is why we want to highlight this, from the Restore Council. It's one of seven priority projects of the Restore Council uh, to address the coastal land loss issues in the state. And the Moripaw Swamp area, which it's going to benefit, um, and then the Manchac Land Bridge and all of that, um, that's a really critical area for wildlife. Is that correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's there's lots of wildlife there. There's you know people go fishing for largemouth bass, sunfish, crappie, uh, hunting for white-tailed deer, um, obviously squirrels, rabbits. Uh, it's also important for our waterfowl and migratory birds. Migratory birds use the swamp as a stopping point uh, on their way to wintering grounds in Latin America. And obviously, you know, everybody loves bald eagles. You got those there and alligators. So there's just a, a ton of wildlife there, and it's really important habitat for that. Yeah, it's such a beautiful part of the state. I mean, I've been kayaking there a few times, and I just absolutely love it. And, you know, Audubon, I mean, Eric and Katie, um, our, our scientists, have done a lot of work there with planetary warblers, which is an important habitat for that bird. Um, but also, it has a lot of benefits to people, right? One of the things we highlighted was the importance of that swamp as storm surge buffer, even for areas up into Baton Rouge. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it enhances community resilience uh, by, like you said, it provides a, a buffer for a storm surge. Uh, that comes across Lakes Pontchartrain and Lake Maurepas. So it's important to protect the folks in St. John Parish, St. James, Ascension, uh, Livingston as well. And through that protection, it also protects people even further away, like East Baton Rouge Parish. That's so important. And and so basically, it, it, is, it, it will be similar to some of the diversion projects that are being proposed, right, and that it will kind of uh, reconnect the river with that specific uh, wetland and, and swamp. Yeah, so it's uh, going to reconnect the Mississippi River uh, to this area, provide some fresh water and nutrients and sediment uh, to help build that swamp and help address uh, the salinity issues and the uh, sinking that the, the swamp's experiencing right now. Yeah, and I remember, you know, uh, we took some journalists out and just hearing how much that, that swamp has shrunk over time is really, it was really kind of, 
you know, depressing, but at the same time, it's like, okay, well, we need to save what we have and try to maintain it. And you can see, I mean, driving just uh, past the airport and in between New Orleans, Baton Rouge, you see the area that's like really healthy and full and you see the cypress trees, but then you see as it kind of gets more closer to Lake Pontchartrain and there's more saltwater intrusion where there's been a lot of die off. Right. So it's still, I mean, it's still a, a beautiful swamp, regardless of the, the degradation that's happened, but obviously that that needs to be addressed um, because it, it affects the wildlife in that area. It affects the communities that live around that area and even communities further out, like I said, Baton Rouge even, benefits from the health of the swamp. Uh, but it's still a very uh, important area, even in its degraded state, but it's, it's definitely needed for lots of restoration, which this project is going to help address. So let's, uh, one more time, let's give everyone a reminder about the meeting, location, time. We'll be there, yeah. yeah. where they can find information. Yeah, so uh, to get information, you can visit our website, lawildlifefed.org. Uh, you can also go to CPRA's website, coastal.la.gov. And on that website, the easiest way to get there is once you get on that website, first thing you're going to see is an interactive project map. And you can click on that map and click on the icon for the project, and it'll bring you directly to that page where you can get lots of information and documents if you really want to dive into the, the science behind everything. Um, but this meeting is going to be Monday, March 26th. It's at the Regala Park uh, Gym in Reserve. It'll start at 530 with an open house. And then we'll have the presentations will start. We have Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation. Uh, Dr. Theron Hinkle will be presenting uh, starting off at 6 o'clock after that. CPRA will have a presentation, and then we'll open it up for a question and answer session with attendees. Very cool, very cool. Stacy, what else do y'all have coming up? Uh, right now, we're we're really diving deep into this. We have a couple other uh, issues that we're going to be sending out some action alerts on. So just kind of be on the lookout for that. We're getting some of that ready right now. And yeah, y'all watch wrapping uh, up. Y'all watch um, some things on the legislature too, right, Stacy? Y'all yeah, are very so, active in session. Yep. Well, we're Rebecca is uh, has been really busy running back and forth to the Capitol. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll have some things that we'll be queuing up pretty soon. So we're not ready to release that stuff just yet but be on the lookout for that because we'll definitely have some a way for people to take action uh one of our main um ways to do that is if you go to our website lacamo.org that's the camo coalition uh that's where we have some action alerts where people can take action so just be sure to be on the lookout there and you can also sign up to receive alerts on that website as well yeah it's going to be a long session so we'd love to have you back on and kind of update everybody about the the meeting and and about the legislation that's coming up and so well stacy um i have to ask because it's a requirement of all guests so you you get a fun question like an initiation yeah it's an initiation um what is your favorite louisiana wildlife species Ooh. Ooh, my favorite species let's see that's a good question hmm <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty. I'm I'm pretty amazed by bald eagles. Obviously, they're kind of one of my favorite birds. Yeah. So every time I drive over like the Chafalaya River, I go back and forth between Baton Rouge and Lafayette a lot, and so I'll see you know some of the eagles. So that's that's always one of the the main things I see as I'm crossing the Chafalaya, which is just another really beautiful swamp area. <laughs> that's a good uh, answer. Yeah, yeah. And I see those in Marpaul too. So. That's my favorite. Yep, yep. A beautiful bird. You know, Shock and I are fond of these quizzes. Um, not only do we ask you a fun question, but we have the quiz ourselves about what kind of Louisianian are you, you know. Uh, we'll have to look up to see what a bald eagle says about somebody when they pick that. Or if they pick a, um, you know, a warbler. 
A warbler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I like the Rosie at Spoonbill, and I get made fun of by mm, our, our ornithologist bird. for it. But trash bird. <laughs> it's still so cool. Well, Stacy, thank you so much um, for coming on Delta Dispatches. We definitely want to have you back to talk more about the river reintroduction to Mora Paw Swamp. Um, and then hear about the meeting and all the other good work that you have going on. Yeah, um, good luck cool. on Monday. Yeah, and one more time, give us your website and where people can go to find more information. Yeah, so our website again is lawildlifefed.org. And we have some information there. You can also get some information on the project at coastal.la.gov. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stacy Ortego, Louisiana Wildlife Federation. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. And it's hot sauces. Yeah. Are you ready to get <laughs> saucy? Spicy. Spicy. <laughs> Simone, do you have hot sauce in your bag? <laughs> no, but but my husband certainly would love to carry it around. And he was in the military and they used to put the teeny tiny bottle in their meal kit. Oh, I love so. the teeny tiny bottles mm-hmm. of Tabasco. Those mm-hmm. are great. Well, we're so excited to have our next guest on, um, Mr. Shane Bernard. Um, he's a native of Louisiana and Cajun, grew up in Lafayette, um, and has spent many years in, in New Iberia. He is the historian for one of Louisiana's most iconic, if not most iconic brands, Tabasco. Um, And in addition to writing a number of books um, and being a fellow um, at the Center for Louisiana Studies, welcome to Delta Dispatches, Shane. Thank you so much for being on. Hi, glad to be here. So I guess, first of all, tell us, how does someone get a job like historian for Tabasco? Absolutely. Is there a job posting for that? 
Well, I was just in the right place at the right time because this happens to be our 150th anniversary. Tabasco was first sold commercially in 1868. Well, 25 years ago, when it was the 125th anniversary of Tabasco, the McElhenney family began to think about all the artifacts and documents that were stored all over the island and even in New Orleans and elsewhere and uh, consider the possibility of hiring a historian, and I just ended up being that historian. That's very cool. Yeah, so what is your typical day like? I mean, uh, walk us through that. Well, there, there really is no typical day, and that's one thing that I love about this job. I may be doing historical research, and I love historical detection, the detective work of being a historian, or I may be giving a tour to the public or to... Uh, a food writer or food editor or business people from who knows where in the world. Uh, I may be out doing, um, collecting some uh, uh, archaeological objects from the ground, doing a ground collection and bagging it and dating the bag and all that. In fact, I did some of that earlier today. Uh, I don't dig up anything. I leave that to the professional <laughs> archaeologist. But uh, I deal a lot with the media I answer a lot of questions, you know, I, I debunk myths and, uh, you know, dig for the truth about this and that, because I, I don't just preside over Tabasco-related documents here. There are documents in the McElhenney Company and Avery Island Inc. archives that deal with Arctic exploration in the 1890s, the Rough Riders Cavalry Regiment under Theodore Roosevelt. We have a lot of Roosevelt correspondents here because... They were very good friends with the McElhenney's, both uh, both Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, T.R.'s wife and daughter uh, were friends with the McElhenney's, and just all kinds of stuff like that. The United States Marine Corps, because Walter McElhenney rose from private to Brigadier General in the Marines, so we have his Marine papers here. Uh, just all sorts of stranger-than-fiction stuff you end up finding here in the archives. Shane, I was just going to actually ask you before that, my next question was going to be, does a day go by that you learn something new? But it sounds like with so many fascinating different avenues that you could go down and, um, you know, you just mentioned Roosevelt and the military and things like that. I mean, you must learn something new every day. I do. And, and I love learning just by nature. And so it's great to learn something new every day. And, and I do. You know, it was only about three years ago that my uh, intern on her first day of work, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, uh, I set her to work looking through a file drawer that I thought might have some old photographs in it. And sure enough, she found a photograph of two children standing in front of an old building. So she showed it to me, and I said, I said, oh, my God, that's the original Tabasco sauce factory, the laboratory that operated from 1868 to 1905. But I've never seen it look quite like that before. It did not yet have its three-story tower and the oblong brick and uh, clapboard uh, extension on it. It was just a shadow of what it was later, and it really forced uh, not only me but, but the McElhenney family to reconsider what we thought of when we thought of the place where Tabasco was born. It was not this much bigger church-like looking structure with a tower. It was, it was like a little shoebox of a building instead, and 
you never know when stuff like that's going to show up. So, Shane, some people might be wondering, okay, so you're a show about the coast. Why are you having Tabasco <laughs> on? But uh, Tabasco is a coastal business, right? And, and the McElhenney's are coastal landowners. So, and big supporters. Yeah, and, and obviously big supporters of Audubon and other mm-hmm. organizations. So tell us a little bit about that connection. Well, all the Tabasco sauce in the world, and that's on average about 700,000 bottles of sauce per day, uh, is made here on Avery Island. So even if you're in the interior of China or you know up the Nile River or in Central Europe and you see a bottle of Tabasco sauce labeled in some non-English language, it was still aged, uh, processed, and um, labeled, bottled, packaged here on the island and then went out to all those places. Did you say and per day? Did you say per, per day? day 700,000 wow. per day on average, right. And we can do a lot more than that if we have to, if we have a big order. If there's but a big em- uh, Tabasco emergency. Open water. <laughs> oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just teasing about, uh, about 700,000 being a lot. Keep going. I'm sorry. Well, we're only about three miles from open water. Uh, you can't see Vermilion Bay in the Gulf of Mexico from here. Well, you can if you're on top of, like, uh, there are a couple of old houses here that have widow walks, and you can see as far as uh, Sippermore Point and Southwest Pass from the top of them. But when you're on ground level, even though the island is very hilly because it's a salt dome, which is you know unusual for South Louisiana, you can't really see open water from the island. But we're, we're right next to it. And then between the island and the water, three miles away or so, is uh, this huge expanse of uh, grassy marshland uh, that is sometimes flooded and sometimes not, depending on uh, how much it's rained and what direction the, the tide is coming from and that sort of thing. Shane, we're about to head into a break, but I, I, well, there's so much more to get into. I want to talk a little bit about the fascinating history, some of the connections we have with our organizations. Would you mind hanging on through the break? Sure. All right. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be right back with Shane Bernard, historian of Tabasco. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I am Samoa Laws. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our podcast. Uh, check us out on Restore the Mississippi River Delta webpage and Restore or Retreat. Welcome back, Shane. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, so you've written a book about the history of Tabasco. Among, among You have some other books, too. Well, tell us about the Tabasco book and like give us the Cliff Notes version of the, the history in our state. Well, that book was supposed to be the companion book to a Tabasco museum that we were going to open in New Orleans in 2005. Then Katrina hit, and then Rita hit our part of the state. I mean, we're only like 130 miles west of you guys, but uh, we didn't get hit by Katrina. We got hit by Rita about a month later. Right. And there was, I think it was an 11, 11 and a half foot storm surge that came in from the Gulf. And again, like I said, we're only about three miles from open water. So it, it, it wrapped around the island and the flood water kept going north a couple of miles. Uh, and so the island was really an island at that time. And there was flooding on the perimeter of the island. Most of the island is, is really elevated compared to the rest of Louisiana. So it was just the perimeter that got flooded. Um, but that in, uh, required the building of a 17-foot-high levee around the low side of our factory because stormwater came within, I think it was three or four inches of the factory floor. So we kind of learned our lesson real quick. Let's build a levee to protect 
you know, <laughs> the world's source of Tabasco sauce. And, uh, and so there went the budget for the museum. Ten years later, we opened finally a Tabasco museum, but here on the island, a little bit scaled down structure, but still with all the artifacts that were intended for the original museum. And that, that book I did called Tabasco and Illustrated History was meant to be the companion book for the museum from uh, 10 years ago, but we decided to release it as a standalone book anyway. Very neat. So, um, so Shane, you know, I want to get into a little bit of the, the, you know, what it means to be a coastal landowner and, and conservation, but tell us a little bit about the founder of Tabasco, uh, Edmund McElhenney. Edmund is a very interesting guy, and I, I, I kind of feel like I know him, although I don't want to be presumptuous, but I, I've read uh, every letter he's known to have written, at least every letter that still exists and that we know about. Some of these I found as far away as Oxford University in England, um, but you know, pulling together all of these letters that he wrote, and like a lot of the Averys and McElhenney's, he seemed to have kept everything. We've got hundreds and hundreds uh, of letters from the 1800s. Uh, in fact, my, my assistant is right now uh, uh, storing these in a more proper way. They were found in bundles tied together in big packs of maybe, you know, a couple dozen letters each shoved into cracks in a brick wall mm. and wrapped around steam pipes what? in the factory. But uh, they were no worse for the wear. I don't even maybe that steam even kept away the silverfish and whatnot because they they're actually in pretty good shape. But we're taking them out of those bundles and recording what bundle they were in, but putting them in proper sleeves now and storing those in binders uh, for the long term because that's really the right way to do it using archivally safe material. Uh, so that was a lot of the source material for the book that I wrote, but Edmund, Edmund believed getting up before dawn, the first thing he would do would be to walk to the uh, French market in New Orleans because he lived as a bachelor on Exchange Place or Exchange Alley, uh, which looks now a lot like it did then, if you look at the late 19th century photographs that, that exist of it. And um, he would get uh, his copy of the Picayune or whatever New Orleans newspaper. There were a lot of newspapers back then in, in different languages in New Orleans. And he would he would sip his coffee. He'd get it from the same vendor every day. And then uh, after the sun came up, he would go to work at the Bank of Louisiana, which was on the corner of Royale and I can't remember the other street, but the building is still there. And, um, and then he would work as a bookkeeper. He worked his way up the Bank of Louisiana to being an independent bank owner. He ended up buying several branch banks as his own and riding around the state on stagecoach and on steamboats, checking the books to make sure everything's on the up and up. But then because of the Civil War, he lost all his money and had to come up with a new career and somehow came up with this idea, why don't I make a pepper sauce and sell it? <laughs> and, <laughs> right, yeah. how amazing. And 150 years later, <laughs> here we are. Hey, I'm going to go from a bank to hot sauce. Yeah. Uh, she, it is really weird because he had no experience as a food manufacturer or as a planter, and you had to know how to plant and raise the peppers and how to process right, them into a sauce. Right. You would he think had, he'd have an agriculture background almost. No, he always lived in you know metro New Orleans mm -hmm. and worked in the financial business. Hmm. 
Maybe one day, Simone, you and I can become I love it. a hot sauce you manufacturer can, you can or something. You yeah, want, you never right? know. You can do anything you want. Shane, what does Tabasco even mean or stand for the name Tabasco if McElhaney is, is their last name? Well, again, I think that's a New Orleans connection and that New Orleans traded heavily with the Gulf Coast of Mexico, mm-hmm. including the Tabasco region of Mexico. Tabasco is a political region like a state mm-hmm. of Mexico below Veracruz. And there was a lot of trade between the region of Tabasco and the port of Tabasco, which now has a different name, uh, and New Orleans. And so you can go look in the Picayune or any number of newspapers from back then that are scanned and on the Internet now. You know, pick a year, 1856. Look in the shipping section, and you'll see ads for uh, the sailing ship uh, Smith showed up today in New Orleans uh, loaded with... Uh, 500 bales of, of red pepper from Tabasco. And I think that Edmund, needing a name for his product, thought to himself, well, that region of mm-hmm. Mexico is already associated in the mind of New Orleanians and people along the Gulf Coast with spices, so that's what I'll pick. And it's, a, it's a, ultimately an Aztec word, meaning either land where the soil is humid or the more recent etymology is placed of the coral or oyster shell. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he picked it because partly he liked how it sounded, and partly he knew people already associated it with spice. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Fascinating. No, I didn't know that. Well, let's talk a little bit about his uh, his descendants. So E.A. McElhenney um, and, and kind of his importance in the conservation mo- movement in Louisiana and, and nationally. Yeah, E.A. was the second eldest son of Edmund McElhenney, the inventor of Tabasco. The eldest son, John Avery McElhenney, went into politics and government after first serving in the Rough Riders under Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, That allowed uh, E.A., Edward Avery McElhenney, to take over the family business. He ran it for the next uh, 51 years, from 1898 to his death in 1949. And during that time, he also found time to do what he really liked was any kind of research into science or, um, or anthropology. So he collected African-American gospel music as performed on Avery Island, and it, it still exists today because of his efforts, African-American folklore, but also anything about any kind of plant or animal. He could tell you the name in Latin and in English. Um, uh, the well, he translated works from French into English about botany. These were specifically about camellias, which was a big love of his. Uh, he could tell you all sorts of things about bamboo and wisteria and holly and irises, and he had just uh, dozens, in some cases over hundreds of varieties of these plants that he grew on his private estate, which eventually morphed into jungle gardens the drive-through garden that still exists there today. And and he was integral to kind of saving the snowy egret. Is that is that also correct? Yeah. Um, he had different dates that he assigned to the founding of his private wildfowl refuge here on the island. Um, you know, he wrote several times during his lifetime recollections of how he founded it. But 1895 is the year that makes the most sense chronologically because before that, in 1890. 394, he was either off at college or he was in the Arctic Circle. 1897-98, he was in the Arctic Circle again. Um, so 95 was the earliest that he really would have been here on the island for an entire summer, as he 
said he was, to raise these birds that he found out in the marsh, uh, get them acclimated to the island in this flying cage, as he called it, but it was, you know, an aviary. And then in the fall, he took the aviary down, let the birds fly away, and as he hoped, they came back the next spring from Mexico or Central America and uh, brought with them uh, even more egrets, and every year more and more would show up like that, so that by around 1910, he was saying there were something like 100,000 birds in Bird City here on the island, uh, uh, whereas... You know, 15 years earlier, there were only uh, a very few. Well, and I want to talk a little bit more about his um, importance in terms of establishing some of the wildlife refuges that exist along the state. But we're heading into another break. Um, so do you mind hanging on for one more one more segment, Shane? Sure. All right. Well, we'll be right back. Uh, we're talking about Tabasco and, and its proud history in Louisiana on the 150th anniversary of the brand and hot sauce. Um, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, jobs, and hot sauces. <laughs> <laughs> only Tabasco, though, today. That's the only hot sauce we know. So welcome back to Delta Dispatch's Shane. Um, we were talking about the really impressive history um, of, of Tabasco and, and the McElhenney family, and definitely encourage everyone to go and, and, and you know pick up the book. What's the name of the book again? Uh, Tabasco and Illustrated History. Okay, and I'm sure they can get it at their bookstores book and, and other places. Um, but tell us a little bit, I mean, there's a unique history and connection between Audubon and the Audubon Society and the McElhenney's, is that correct? That's right. Edward Avery McElhenney, who, as I mentioned, was the son of Edmund McElhenney, the man who invented Tabasco sauce. Edward Avery McElhenney was the first uh, president of the Louisiana chapter of the Audubon Society. So one of the things that I have in the archives here are a couple of sheets of blank Audubon Society letterhead <laughs> with EA's name in in the margin, uh, EA Mackley president. And so uh, that's that was like you know, uh, right around 1900, I believe. Wow. And I, I remember seeing, I think, like a scanned image of that of that letterhead. And it's just so cool to see that, that history. Um, and we're still neighbors and partners to this day, correct? That's right. McElhenney Company works with uh, Audubon and other groups, including local landowners and other conservation groups, to protect the marshes around Avery Island and even beyond that. Uh, for wildfowl and for other uh, wild species. Yeah, and I mean, we are so appreciative of the partnership and, and you know, certainly with our Rainy Wildlife Sanctuary um, in Vermilion Parish, you know, it's been great, I, I know, to like partner and, and figure out how landowners can pull resources. I think somewhat, somewhat up to $70 million have been um, secured through our Rainy Conservation Alliance, which includes McElhenney um, uh, Incorporated, uh, and to, it's toward restoration efforts. So it's 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 been really successful in a model that other landowners can can employ. Yeah, and sounds like it was always part of their history, right? Mm -hmm. It was it was uh, part of the way that they grew up, and and so that's a wonderful tradition to still have. In addition to you know the amazing hot sauce story. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about also we we mentioned it at the before the break, but um, E. A. McElhenney, in addition to kind of his um, bird conservation efforts, he actually helped establish some of the first wildlife refuges in the state. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, you know the McElhenneys were 
and still are conservationists in the Theodore Roosevelt mold. So they were very much hunters on the one hand, but conservationists on the other. And um, if you read Theodore Roosevelt's article that he wrote uh, in the early 1900s called In the Louisiana Cane Breaks, he mentions in there E.A. McElhenney's rookery and calls it the most noteworthy in the country. He doesn't say why, but if I had to guess, I would say because it was privately funded and it was just one man's initiative to set up this wildfowl rookery. And then in the same way, E.A. McElhenney took it upon himself to buy up options for thousands of acres of land on what is now Marsh Island, Louisiana, and also uh, on the uh, mainland in Vermilion Parish, Louisiana. And uh, he didn't know how he was actually going to pay for all this. So he went up north on both occasions after pur- purchasing land in both those spots in Louisiana to give uh, public speeches to other conservationists and to convince them to buy, uh, as he called it, subscriptions to pay for, he didn't mean magazine subscriptions, he just meant donate and so we can we can buy this land outright, um, and both times uh, he ended up meeting a wealthy northerner who said, "Look, I'll buy the whole thing and turn it over to uh, to the wildlife." And uh, on one occasion, it was uh, the Rockefellers that uh, he came into contact with. They had just set up the Rockefeller Foundation. It was a brand new group, and they ended up. Uh, buying what is now the Rockefeller uh, refuge on coastal Louisiana, and then he he met a representatives of Mrs. Russell Sage, who lived in New York City right by Central Park, and who was sort of a stereotypical wealthy shut-in. You know, she really didn't have that much communication with the outside world, uh, but through her handlers, uh, she decided to buy all of Marsh Island, Louisiana. Uh, that that pretty big island right off the coast uh, of Avery Island, and then E. McElhenney, E. A. McElhenney himself, got together with a wealthy northerner named Charles Willis Ward, whose family was in timber and also had a plant nursery in Bro- Brooklyn, New York. Uh, they bought up a lot of land along Vermilion Bay, thirteen thousand acres more or less, and they deeded it to the state. That's now the generically named uh, State Wildlife Refuge in Vermilion Parish, and then Marsh Island became the Sage uh, Refuge, and then, as I mentioned, the other one became Rockefeller. And so EA had a, had a hand in all of those. So two things. Um, he must have been very persuasive, <laughs> very persuasive about his subscriptions. And two, yeah, Jock and I need to know those circles that he ran in. <laughs> yeah. How did he, he just hung out with all those very uh, popular and in um, uh, generous philanthropist. I do, Shane, we're uh, coming kind of towards the end of the show. I, I do want to hit on something. Uh, Jacques and I talked about it earlier about the New York Times and Times Picayune. They've been covering a lot about some of the environmental challenges facing uh, Louisiana, but Times Picayune zoomed in on, on Avery Island in Tabasco, right? As a coastal landowner, talk about that feature a little bit and, and what that meant. Well, yes, the, the Times-Picayune did an article that was uh, picked up by other newspapers and media outlets about uh, the state of the marsh surrounding the island. 
And, you know, sometimes it seems like things are very iffy with the marsh, with the state losing so much coastal wetlands every day. Um, you know, the McElhenney family is naturally concerned about this property that abuts Avery Island. Uh, I don't think they really want the island to become an island in the formal sense. You know, it's called an island because from a distance it looks like an island. Uh, it's actually about three miles inland, but it's surrounded on all sides by wetlands, either cypress swamp, uh, grassy marsh, or bayous. Uh, there are three or four bayous of varying size surrounding the island. So in that sense, you can't leave without taking a boat or a bridge. And um, really, the family, this is nothing new. They, they've always been concerned about the, the state of the marshland uh, around the island and then also about the, the island proper, the, the highland that makes up the island itself, much of which is given over to wildlife, including uh, Louisiana black bear. We have quite a mm -hmm. few Louisiana black bear on the island. I've seen... Uh, in the past year, maybe four of them. Teddy Roosevelt Bears? <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane, we're, you know, approaching the end of the show, but, you know, there's so much more we could get into. We'd love to have you back. But again, I mean, it just shows the point that Louisiana's coast is truly a working coast. And 700,000 bottles of Tabasco are shipped around Amazing. the world Amazing. because of, you know, because of that. So thank you so thank much you, for being on. Thanks to, you know, the, the McElhenney's for all of their support and you know for leading the conservation movement in louisiana and being such a great coastal landowner what a great 50th episode I know. that was a yeah. very very great way love to the history and, and just love talking about the amazing so people just a reminder more paw swamp project meeting coming up on monday uh march 26th at 5 30 at the regala gym in reserve louisiana audubon earth fest we have oyster shell bagging coming up and lake pontchartrain's fourth annual beach sweep all right. Well, that was another great show. You were listening to Delta Dispatches. Thanks so much. DeltaDispatches.org. Have a great week.